Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Beat. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Beat. I'm your host today, Mike Carter. You can see me at MDRC0508 on the Twitter machine. Joined as always by my intrepid co-host, Chris Torres. Torres, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm good. I'm good. Intrepid. That's not a word that's uh, been used to describe me before, but uh, I'll take it. But yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, we're nearing the halfway point of the season here. Feels like it's been a lot longer for some reason. I don't know. This, this season seems to be uh, kind of dragging for me, but um, you know, happy to talk with Kurt here about the Brewers. And yeah, we just got an awesome episode coming up. So tell our listeners what we got going on. Yeah, you, you think it's bad being a uh, Yankees fan? Try being a White Sox fan. It's the it's about as bad as it gets right now. So without further ado, let's get to our guest. We have Kurt Hogg with us, who's the Brewers beat reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and also a self-proclaimed top fan of Space Jam. We won't judge him too harshly for that. Kurt, how's it going today? It's good, good. I just pulled up a seat right here on by the Home Run Apple. Uh, I love it, man. A nice, you, that's nice, a nice view. to the stadium. So. <laughs> that's awesome. Good. That's awesome. Hey, Kurt, um, I want to ask you a little bit about the article that you published today because there's some interesting stuff in there. But to kind of just get us started, you were on earlier with us, but can you tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are on the season so far for the Brewers? Anything that's really surprised you, good or bad? I guess to start off on the bad note, the offense has been surprisingly poor. I don't think anyone pegged this as one of the best lineups in the league coming in, but it was a group that was expected to be deep full of kind of like average, slightly above average hitters. Uh, And entering play today, they have the third worst WRC plus in baseball, which is not, not great. And a lot, and while the pitching has been hampered by injuries, uh, Brandon Woodruff has missed what three months now. Wade Miley missed a month. Aaron Ashby is still out. The offense, not so much. Garrett Mitchell's been out and probably going to miss the entire season uh, after injuring his shoulder in April. Luis Arias missed a few months, um, a couple months at the start of the year. But outside of that, it's been a pretty healthy group, and they've just underperformed drastically. Yeah, that's for sure. It's been an interesting thing to watch. Uh, Only 90 miles down the road here from where you guys are at in Milwaukee, and their struggles against lefties have been very pronounced, as you talked about in your piece today. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that's kind of hard to make a ton of sense of. Their OPS going into last night's game was under 600 against lefty starters. And then David Peterson, who has an, uh, had an ERA over eight on the year, shut him out through six innings. So it's a lineup that has a bunch of guys with reverse splits. Brian Anderson has reverse splits. Luke Voigt was the guy that they signed in the offseason. He had reverse splits. Uh, Keston Hero, who's not with the team right now, famously had reverse splits. kind of one of the things that hinders him uh, and his, his viability on the roster. But... Uh, yeah, that's another thing that's hard to figure out. But uh, what's not hard to figure out, guys, is that it's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kurt, you talked about the offense and how it's underperformed. But let's talk to uh, or, or let's touch on one of the pitchers who has been a huge disappointment, especially in fantasy circles. Um, this was a, a guy who was going in the first round of fantasy drafts, and that was Corbin Burns. And he is really not pitched well this season, especially, you know, this is a former Cy Young winner. And and if you look at his numbers, they've really fallen off. Um, We're talking about a 4.1 ERA to this point. K rate is down to 22.6% this year after being above 30 the past few years. 
Um, everything looks to just have, um, you know, the performance has gone down dramatically. 11.9% swinging strike rate. So if you could give us a little insight, Kurt, into what's going on there, and do you think that there's a turnaround coming from the interesting thing with with Burns is the stuff is almost completely across the board the same as it was when he won the Cy Young a couple years back, and and the same as it was last year when he was he wasn't the Cy Young, but I think he finished like sixth or seventh in the voting. The the metrics and then you know, if you look at everything by that by that way, he's he's the same pitcher, but the results it's impossible to say that he's been the same pitcher. Guys are putting much, much better swings on the cutter. There's some questions if it's like a sequencing or or just a sequencing issue or if guys are getting used to seeing his stuff and if there's, you know, just a different way of attacking that he needs to go about it because the stuff says he should be way better than he's been. Um, but the lack of the lack of swing and miss has been glaring. Uh, there's been far much more loud contact more homers uh like i said with the cutter especially guys are putting great swings on it so it's uh it i don't think the long-term outlook for corbin burns is is drastically you know affected a ton at this point just because the stuff is still there um but until the swing and miss comes back it's it's a big concern and leads to questions uh about what the brewers are going to do with him at this deadline do you think that what happened in the offseason with the arbitration case and him losing and there being some bad blood there. Like, do you think that's kind of creeped into his performance and that maybe there is a mental aspect going on uh, with him this year? That is, that's hard to say one way or the other, but kind of like I was saying, it is hard to pinpoint what exactly is the issue. And that opens the door for some speculation. You think back to 2019 when he was one of the worst pitchers in baseball, and then to go ahead to be one of the better pitchers in 2020 and then the best pitcher in 2021, it's like the margins for him are surprisingly thin. I think as a pitcher with, with that good of stuff, like just to have that quick of a turnaround from 19 to the version that we saw of him now to turn back around and kind of be, uh, what maybe like he's been what a more of a big league average starter this year so that's what's surprising to me is how quickly it flips and um like i said the door's open to whatever speculation you want at this point um even if it's hard to pinpoint what it is for sure An another pitcher that has been on the shelf there in milwaukee is brandon woodruff who was a high draft pick on a lot of fantasy drafts uh this, this season as well i did see a little bit of your clip in your interview with him the other night kurt What's the timeline for his uh, recovery and, and being back in the big leagues? We know that he's made progress in the last few weeks, but where's he at right now? Yeah, it's it's progress, but it's going to be it's been slow progress and going to still be slow progress. I think the end of July is maybe an optimistic look at the timeline. He's still got a bunch of bullpens left. He'll be throwing bullpens throughout throughout the All Star break and maybe even a little bit into the second half, and then you got to get him. Whether it's into some sim games or a couple rehab starts, you figured he's going to have to make a couple of those at least. Uh, you kind of put that all together. And where he's at right now, he's just through 25 pitches yesterday, I believe. End of July, maybe. Um, but they've got to do basically a whole new ramp up as if it's spring training with him all over again. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a wild thing. You know, it, 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 there was not a lot of information there for a while. So what you what you covered the other night was really helpful for people, I think, to understand where he's at and what the actual timeline is. Yeah, it's a tricky injury, too. 
Uh, it's just like the same shoulder injury that Shane Bieber had, if you remember that. And like, it's uh, it just varies so much. And it's kind of, as Woodruff has described, it's, it's really finicky. And, you know, you, you feel good, but you, deep down, like, you know, you, you still have to take it slow. And so that's been a big part of it, too. He's finally past that, he said. He feels healthy and like the injury has is in the rearview mirror now. But like I said, he's got to build back up as if it's spring training all over. Makes sense. So let's focus on one of the bright spots uh, for the Brewers this season, and that's been the resurgence of Christian Yelich. So, Kurt, um, I want to ask you, is there anything in particular that you feel has led to um, an improved season from him? I mean, he's uh, he already is up to 17 stolen bases after only 19 last year. The average is up. He's barreling the ball more this season. Um, is it just that he is finally 100% healthy? Has there been a change in approach? Give us some insight into what's led to these improvements. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. He's changed a little bit, mechanically changed his swing a little bit. And you can see the fruits of that in the fly ball rates, the, the average launch angle. It's still, I, he's still... He's always going to be a, a, a ground ball guy. Like, even when he was MVP Yelich, he was still hitting a lot of grounders. Uh, he was just actually hitting the ball in the air and on line drives a lot more. And that went away the last two years. So a little swing change has got him back to elevating some more. He's always hit the crap out of the ball. We've known that about him. Uh, but the health is there. The swing looks a lot better. And we've been going on, what, two full months now of him at a – 900 plus maybe like 950-ish OPS uh, which is a pretty good sample size and when you've seen it out of a guy in the past and then he brings it back over a sample size of a couple hundred plate appearances you start to think like okay this is it's it's not MVP Yelich and I don't think we're ever going to get that again but getting what an 800 OPS a lot of steals some homers hitting leadoff score some runs like that's the Brewers will absolutely take that and on this offense he's, he's the last thing from a front there problem well, that's the truth for sure. Kurt, the Brewers had three elections to the future games roster announced last week. Jackson Churio, Jefferson Cuero, and Jacob Mizorowski. The name many fans know in fantasy circles is Churio. How's his season been so far? And any thoughts on when he might crack the big league roster? Yeah, I've watched a fair amount of Churio at double A. Like the numbers aren't super flashy. I think he's hitting around the league average with his OPS and WRC plus and things like that. But he's 19 years old. He's at double A. And by the end of June, he has 10 homers and 20 steals. He's, if you like, if you watch the videos itself, he's crushing the ball. He's hit into a lot of hard outs and um, all the signs of one of the top 10 prospects in baseball are still there. The bat speed is incredible. He's, he's electric in pretty much every facet of the game. So it's, it's been a good, it's been a solid year for him, even if the numbers aren't as eye popping as they were last year. Uh, and as for his big league timeline, Still, feels a bit early out to say, but I, I do think next year, maybe in the second half, is a realistic possibility. I think we're looking at Double A for most of, if not all, of this year, and then a, a start at Triple A last year, and then you'll see how that goes, and you know when he's needed up here, and you're a phone call away at that point. Mm-hmm. So, Kurt, I want to look at the the season moving forward here, and listen, the Brewers, you know, even with their struggles on offense, they're 41 and 38. They're a half a game out of first place, so uh, obviously they are contenders in that weak NL Central. Uh, where do you think they need to improve uh, to make the playoffs, and, you know, where do you see, um, are some, what are some possible targets for them at the deadline? Right-handed hitting bats. 
like actual bats, guys that can hit, that can hit left-handed pitching. They got, they, they, they need some sort of impact um, in the lineup. We've talked about that. I think the bullpen has had some surprise guys. Elvis Piguero and Yoel, Yoel Piams have been really good in the seventh and eighth inning. Devin Williams is obviously, you know, rock star at the, at the back end, but I think they'll still need some more guys in that area. Uh, the starting pitching should be fine. Um, especially when you look at the other aspects of the team where they need help. So it is interesting to, and it will be interesting to see what their approach ends up being. I don't think this is a part by any stretch of the imagination, like a great team. I think you might even have to squint a little bit to see it as a good team. They're pretty mediocre and kind of held up by a bad division. And so it's, it's an interesting case of, well, they're, they're contending by proxy of being in the NL central. Uh, They have this win. Oops, sorry, sorry about that. It looks like I was just getting called. Um, they're they're contenders by proxy of being in the NL Central, but the team's not great. And so, how much do you want to sell off in the future to to win now? Yeah, it makes sense because, um, like you said, they're being propped up by this division. Uh, they have a negative run differential, uh, minus twenty five. So, uh, this doesn't look like a team. I, I don't see them on the same. Um, you know, in the same category as Atlanta or no. Dodgers, no. Or, yeah. you know, they're, they're not built to, to compete with those teams yet. But, uh, and, and we know that the Brewers aren't big, uh, you know, they're not a big market. They're not going to go make a big splash most likely. Most um, so, uh, except for that one year with CC, but, uh, yeah. So, um, but what I really want to know is we asked you in the off season about you going down the Bernie Brewer slot. And you said that was a dream of yours. So has that happened yet? And if it hasn't, why not? <laughs> no. And I think I think we have uh, the incident last year where the Dodgers reporter uh, broke some ribs sliding yes, down. And yes, I think you we have that. that to blame. Like it's it has become much harder to to get someone to take or like even be allowed to go down the slide. They have a. They've cracked down. They're much less lenient than they used to be on the slide. But I'm pushing for it. I am pushing for it. Still. Is that for like if a fan like is there anything like a fan can do that like when they're not playing or how does that work? You kind of you kind of got to know someone for the slide. Gotcha. OK. Uh, and that someone has it's just got to get cleared by a, a lot more than it used to be. It used to be, like, you know, someone they kind of take you up there, but uh, things are a little more dicey. They don't want any more broken ribs, I, I, I guess. Well, you know what? You know what, Chris? Here's the thing. I'm going to be up there July 7th with some buddies from college watching the Brewers game. I think maybe if they want to see a really fat guy go down there and see how fast we can go, the exit velocity of me coming off that slide might be record. Might break some records. For absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Well, Kurt, we know that you're a busy guy and we know that you're in New York uh, covering the series with the Mets here. Can you let everybody know where they might be able to find your work on Twitter and anything big that you might have coming up that you want to share with us? Yeah. Um, I'll put a little plug in for a story I've got coming tomorrow. I'm on Twitter at C-Y-R-T-H-O-G-G. Uh, Kurt Hogue. My, my actual spelling of the name is not available on Twitter, so we got the Y instead. Uh, I've got a story coming up tomorrow for the Journal Sentinel. It's a, it's a fun look at what every pitcher on the Brewers thinks is the nastiest pitch that they've ever thrown in their careers. So it's a fun look at what guys like Woodruff and Burns and, and, and Devin Williams and even like Wade Miley uh, had to say, and we had some fun with it. So, so uh, keep an eye out for that, I guess. 
Uh, we'll be looking forward to it. Thanks so much for your time today. We know that you're a really busy guy and uh, appreciate you coming back on and visiting with us for a few minutes. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. Wow. Wow. This is about to get very like sentimental here, man. This is <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Uh, so, yeah, we are back. We are back with what was a fantastic guest uh, in the offseason, uh, Sarah Sanchez. So, Mike, uh, why don't you get get started here? Yeah, we've got Sarah with us. Sarah is not only a really great personal friend and my uh, competitor in Glarf, and we will talk about that, I'm sure, throughout the show. But Sarah's got a number of different irons in the fire that she's that she's doing in the fantasy baseball community. She writes at Bleed Cubby Blue, at Fans First SN, and at Baseball HQ, which is one of the greatest websites in the history of fantasy baseball. But even more importantly, she's got a great new show out called What the Fab. I got to be on it early on. Uh, it was a great experience. Sarah is probably the most passionate fantasy baseball player that I know. So, Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thank you for coming on with us this afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, and I'm humbled by that introduction. Thanks, Mike. That's super kind. I will say um, what the fab is, you know, it goes week by week, and we talk about injuries and players who are coming up and all that jazz. But the second half of each show is a lot about process and how people make the decisions they're making in their leagues, both fab decisions and draft decisions and debrief decisions and everything. And the episode with Mike has a ton of great wisdom in it. So go back and uh, check out at least the second half of that. Um, some of the players we're probably talking about there aren't as relevant at the moment, but the second half there has some incredible advice for how you approach your league, how you challenge yourself and how you go back and look at what went well or what didn't go well on a fantasy baseball season. And I'm going to have a lot to look at what didn't go well in Glarf at the end of this fantasy baseball season, but I'll comfort myself with the fact that I won the league last year. Yes, you did. And and won it in miraculous, wonderful fashion the last weekend. It's a story that never gets old. If you want to repeat that here for the listeners, that would be great. Yeah, it's a really good lesson in never giving up. Um, so I was in I was kind of hanging out in third place um for most of the last month of the season. And I was about six and a half points out of first going into the final day of the season. I, I had no intention of winning the league when I was making my final moves. I thought that the best I could do was maybe second. I was really looking forward to beating Dave McDonald. So I was like, got to make every move that I possibly can uh, to, to see if I could make that happen. And just through a quirk of how close the, the categories were clustered in terms of wins, in terms of runs and uh, something else that I'm blanking on. Um, it made it possible for me to make up six and a half points on the final day. And so through the combination of Clayton Kershaw uh, getting a win and you say Kikuchi vul vulturing a win while Marco Gonzalez threw seven innings of one run baseball and didn't get a win because the Mariners couldn't score that day. I managed to pass um, both of the people who were right ahead of me in the standings and the wins category and make up all of those points on the last day. I was like doing the math in my head. Like, I think I just won that I didn't mean to, but it's a really good lesson that, you know, as long as there are games to be played, you can make up points, particularly in close standings. And that's what I'm trying to tell myself right now as I try to claw back from the basement of Glarf. And yet those two people are still very good friends. And let's just face facts. It's always good to beat Dave McDonald. Always. <laughs> Not that I've ever done it. I'm just saying it's, a, it's always a good thing to beat Dave. Dave, we love you. You know that. So uh, anyway, well, Sarah, we brought you on to talk about the Cubs. And we know that you bleed Cubby Blue for sure, uh, even though you write for the website. But that's who you are as a person. You are a passionate Cubs fan. 
they've had an up and down season so far. Um, what's been the most pleasant surprise on the team? And, and to you, what's been the biggest disappointment thus far? I mean, honestly, all of the starting pitching, except for Jamison Tyon and Hayden Wisniewski, has been outstanding for the Chicago Cubs. Justin Steele has been an ace. He looks, he, every time I watch him pitch, he reminds me more of John Lester. And that's about the highest praise that I can give a pitcher, given my Cubs fandom and my AL team is the Boston Red Sox. Uh, I think Justin Steele has been absolutely nails and I did not expect him to continue what he did in the second half last year, given that he only really has two pitches and he's making this happen on superior command and location and just grit. Uh, If you've not watched a Justin Steele start recently, please do. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with how amazing he's been. Marcus Stroman similarly just nails. I mean, he leads the league in quality starts. He's making a case to start the all-star game. He did have to leave the London series game with a blister. Uh, under his finger, but I imagine that'll be healed by the all-star break. And so he's another one that is just pitching out of his mind right now. Kyle Hendricks came back and looks like old Kyle, uh, which I love to see. And they got Drew Smiley, who has yet to hit the injured list this season and is just, again, perfectly serviceable, great starter. The starting pitching has done its job. Two non-pitching things that have gone well for the Cubs that I want to flag here. If you are not paying attention to Christopher Morrell, You are missing a hell of a show. Uh, The dude is all energy. He is amazing. The tools are so loud and ridiculous. 98th percentile max exit velocity, 90th percentile sprint speed, 99th percentile arm speed. The knock against Christopher Morrell has always been that he strikes out too much. In June, Christopher Morrell's strikeout rate is down to 21.3%. We are recording the show at the very end of June. Could that go up a little bit? Yes. It went up from the 17.9%. It was uh, at the start of this week when I was talking about this on Bleed Cubby Blue. He has historically had a 30 to 35%, sometimes up to upwards of a 40% K rate. That is a tremendous improvement. It looks structural. Like I look at his O swing and Z swing and it looks like he's made some actual changes there. Uh, That's huge because that guy has light tower power. And if he manages to increase his walks and limit his Ks. He is Javi Baez without that blind spot where he's always swinging at the sliders. And I, who, who even knows what Christopher Morrell could do? That's a 2020 candidate waiting to happen. He could even go farther. And the last thing I'll say is I really think this team turned it around when Mike Taupman started hitting leadoff against right-handed pitchers, uh, which has been most of the pitching that the Cubs face and most of what they will face in the NL Central because of the way the NL Central, there's just not a lot of lefties in the NL Central. Uh, Mike Taupman has been getting on base at close to a 400 clip um, and he plays excellent center field defense. He can run a little bit uh, that has solidified the Cubs lineup against righties. And it's a big part of why they went from getting swept by the angels to going 10 and three to close out um, by the London series. They just lost a game against the Phillies last night. So I guess it's 10 and four over the last 14 games. I called that Mike Talkman breakout four years ago. <laughs> it's finally happening. Uh, who would have thought that Mike Talkman would be talking about him as a key contributor to a team, um, you know, in the year 2023. But yeah, it, it definitely uh, his him being put in the leadoff spot has coincided with this offense taking off. And I don't know if you remember, Mike, I got a you, you say we don't do victory laps, but I kind of got a victory lap this one. I said probably like three, four weeks ago, I'm like, now that the Cubs are getting healthy, I really feel like this team, if you look at their lineup and what 
their rotation, what the potential that they have, they could be pretty good. And I think we're seeing that now. And I mean, if you look at the rest of the central, I think they're the only team that has a positive run differential. They're plus 25. Everybody else is negative. Um, I think they are in position to be buyers at the deadline. And I really like if if I was a betting man, I would put money on this team. Uh, I know the Reds are in first now. They are America's team right now. Uh, but I look at their pitching and I really don't see how they can hold. Uh, they're exciting. But I think when, when we really break it down, I just don't see them having the arms to get there. But I think the Cubs... They have, uh, you know, the core pieces in place. You mentioned Christopher Morrell, and man, I'm I'm so with you, Sarah. It's amazing the adjustments that he has made over the past month. Here, I was just pulling up uh, over the last month. I mean, he's hitting the ball hard over fifty percent of the time, barreling it thirteen uh, percent, and it was like out of nowhere. Like he, his contact rate was putrid when he first oh. came up, and that was always the issue: the swing and miss. And it was like he just overnight decided that he was going to make more contact. And it's not like he's doing it at the expense of his power. You know, when you have shown that you can hit the ball that hard, um, that's like that's not going anywhere. So if you combine that with the increased contact rate, I mean, I I think the sky is the limit for him. Um, He's a really, really exciting player. Um, But Sarah, I want to ask you more specifically what you think about this team moving forward, uh, specifically at the trade deadline. Do you see them being buyers? And if so, what do you see them needing and uh, potentially acquiring? Them? So it would be really clear. This is like the most asked question in Chicago. I think they could be buyers or sellers. I, I refuse to commit to that at this moment in time, because if you had asked me this question right after they got swept by the Angels and were 10 games under 500, the answer was that they were sellers. I actually wrote a piece that day um, complaining a bit about the Cubs and wondering why they weren't fun anymore. And talking about our Reds, who are fun, uh, our Reds, hat tip, Jeff Erickson and Scott Jensen, who have started the Reds bandwagon, which I am shamelessly also jumping on, even though obviously I want the Cubs to win first. But like, I don't know, man, Ellie De La Cruz is great. And so is Matt McClain. And I that Will Benson bat flip after the walk off was one of the greatest things that I've ever seen in my life. So I, I'm pretty here for the Reds. But I agree with you on the pitching. And I agree with you that the NL Central is weak. Um, I... You asked me that question after the London series when they've just gone 10 and three, now 10 and four, and they're, you know, three games back and they're closing in on 500 again in a weak division. I think they're buyers. Uh, Tom Ricketts says they're buyers. He was quoted as such in the Chicago Tribune and in all the Chicago media. Um, you know, well, anything can happen in the run up between now and the trade deadline. And it's important to highlight what's going to happen with the Cubs schedule right here. The London series came at a really critical time. Uh, I don't know what impact the jet lag or the fact that Chicago has the worst air pollution and air quality in the world right now. And they're playing baseball outside in Chicago in that air quality could have on the team's abilities and on what they've got going forward. But they are in a critical stretch of baseball. They're going to play the Phillies for three games at Wrigley. Then they're going to play the Guardians. After that, they've got the Milwaukee Brewers, the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox heading in to the All-Star break. Those are all teams that fancy themselves as competitive. Those are all teams that would like to be buyers at the deadline. And the Cubs are going to have a lot of games to prove that they can hang in a weak division. If they come out of that and they're still close to 500 and they're still only a handful of games out of first place, I think they're buyers. They go on an 11-12 game losing streak. They could easily be sellers again as fast as you can blink. And so I think that it's the it's the most asked question in Chicago for a reason at this moment in time. And I 50, 50, I mean, it could go either way. 
Yeah, I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, I think uh, Crane Kenny was on the radio the other day saying, you know, sometimes you have to take a step back to take two steps forward and making these really kind of odd comments, you know, at, right after Tom Ricketts had said, yeah, we're going to be buyers, you know. So I think you're right. They could go a number of, of different ways, and they definitely would have some pieces to move if they get to that point. Sir, my question I wanted to ask you that I've been kind of dying to ask you for the last week or so since we lined you to come on, come on the show what are they going to do at first base? Um, you and I both saw Matt Mervis down in the Arizona Fall League when we were down at first pitch in Arizona in uh, November of last year, and he really looked like the guy that was going to come up and, and solve that problem. He came up. He subsequently kind of struggled. They did give him a lot of opportunity, it felt like, to kind of work through some things, and then that kind of hit a pause. Right now they've been using Cody Bellinger a little bit more at first base. What do you think they're going to do there in terms of a long-term uh, solution for the rest of the season? And do you think that the Cubs are interested in a Bellinger reunion for next year? These are all great questions. First, I have to say, I'm sure that the baseball operations side of, of the operations over there at 1060 West Addison wish Crane Kenny would stop talking about their job. They don't comment on his beer bat sales. And he's out there commenting on whether or not they're buyers at the trade deadline or whether or not they've got the money for resources all the time. And I'm sure that's a Thorn and Jed Hoyer's side. I know it would be in mine. Uh, if my b- business guy was out there talking about whether or not the Cubs should be buyers. Um, I will say uh, the first base question is an interesting one. So Mervis struggled at the big league level. That is obvious. But if you look at the underlying numbers, like the hard hit rate, the launch angle, the fly ball rate, I, he really wasn't doing a bad job. He was making pretty good contact. He was sort of getting batted to death and a little bit unlucky. I don't see anything in the profile that screams to me that Matt Mervis has a fatal flaw in the way he has he approaches major league hitting or he can't hit a breaking ball or something like that that makes me think that he's going to struggle when he gets another opportunity. And I do think the question is when, not if. But I also think they've been in a situation at first base with Mervis and Trey Mancini and to some extent Eric Hosmer where the defense was was not good. Uh, the defense was quite bad, and it cost them games. It cost them a game the other day. If you watch the London series, I don't even know what Trey Mancini is doing trying to barehand a ball that Nico Horner's underhanding from two feet away, but that starts the Cardinals uh, a little rally, and then the Cardinals go on to score more runs, and then the Cubs don't score anymore, and they started that game with a 4-0 lead. If that doesn't happen there's a chance that the Cardinals just never get anything going and the Cubs have a 4-0 lead, right? And whatever runs the Cardinals score later aren't enough to overcome what the Cubs have put up. It's a huge error. Mancini admitted it. I think Cody Bellinger gives them a stable, good defensive first baseman. Um, I think Cody Bellinger also playing at first means they can keep Mike Taupman, who we were just talking about, in center field, where Taupman is doing an outstanding job. He doesn't play against lefties, but like I said, that's not that many games for the Cubs. If I was in an NL-only league, could pick up Mike Talkman tomorrow. If I was in a 15 team league where I needed somebody with a high on base percentage and who was going to score a lot of runs, I'd probably pick up Talkman there too and just play him on the weeks where the Cubs are facing a ton of righties, which is most weeks. Um, he's been great. So I think that Bellinger has that job for right now. I think that the Cubs are open to the idea of what if Mervis doesn't work out, we could need a first baseman at some point in the future. And I think they like Cody Bellinger. I don't think Cody Bellinger is having like the best year ever. I think this is a little bit of a bounce back from his truly bottomed out struggles, but you know, the defense still plays the bat is okay. He's not Cody Bellinger of old. Um, 
for the right price, the Cubs would absolutely do a deal there and then just see what winds up happening. Uh, I do think, though, that Mervis is the long-term plan. And I don't think anything happened in his time at the big league club to change that other than he needs to work on his defense a little bit and he needs to get a little bit more lucky. And if I were, um, I have Mervis in a couple of places where I've been able to hold him. I haven't been able to hold him everywhere. I would be in on the discounted price that Mervis is going to go for in fab the next time he comes up. Yeah, totally with you there, Sarah. He, he was very unlucky with a 218 BABIP. Uh, but if you look at all, like you mentioned, the hard hit rate, the barrel percentage, um, you know, even the contact rate was not terrible. So, yeah, I think uh, better luck next time around and uh, the perception of him will be much different. Uh, but looking forward, uh, is there someone, Sarah, that you could think of, whether they're uh, in the minors or maybe someone who's uh, on the bench right now? who you think is going to make the biggest impact in the second half and, and surprise us moving forward. So we just talked about Matt Mervis. I still think he's going to come up and make an impact. I don't know if that impact is 10 home runs. I don't know if it's 15 home runs. I don't know how to, if it's a designated hitter or what, but I do still think he'll come up and make an impact. And I'm excited to see that. There are two pitchers that I'm keeping an eye on at the moment. Uh, ben Brown and Cade Horton are both throwing absolute smoke <laughs> um, in the minors. Uh, Ben Brown was part of the return for trading David Robertson to the Phillies last year, and he skipped double A. Um, I believe that the, well, basically skipped double A. I think he was there for like a day and a half, and then they moved him to triple A. Jed Hoyer mentioned that that was because of the tacky ball that they're using at double A. They felt like it wouldn't work really well with Brown's particular pitch mitts, and so they just threw him in to triple A, where, frankly, he, he looks pretty good. And the Cubs need help at the back of the bullpen. I mean, it is for as great as the starting pitching is, which we were talking about at the beginning. And I'm like, ah, oh, Smiley and Stroman and Steele. And it's so wonderful. The bullpen has been an absolute dumpster fire. 85% of the bullpen is bad. Michael Fulmer has been mostly bad. Brad Boxberger is on the IL. And before he was on the IL, he was bad. Michael Rucker is not trustable. Like the names that are coming at you here, there are three guys in the Cubs bullpen who have been consistently good. They are the only three guys that David Ross can go to to hope to save a lead. And he basically has to get to the seventh inning with his starter in order to do this, right? Like, so then, then he can go Julian Merriweather, Mark Leiter Jr., and Adbert Alzali, who I believe is finally the Cubs closer, although they do mix and match a little bit here and there. That's that's it. Those are the three arms that they can trust out there. Javier Assad has been good sometimes. He's not good other times. Jeremiah Estrada has shown elements. He's not good all the time. Like all of them have issues. And what that means to me is that if you've got power arms in the minors, the Cubs have a huge incentive to see if those power arms can help the bullpen in the second half. And there's a lot of runway to make an impact there. Uh, so Ben Brown and Cade Horton are both guys I'm keeping an eye on. Uh, Cade Horton, who I didn't discuss in as much depth, the Cubs first round draft pick, I believe last season. Um, and it was kind of a surprise pick. The Cubs had one of the top seven picks and everybody's like, ah, there's a magnificent seven. So it's going to be one of these guys. And Kate Horton was not one of those guys. And everybody was like, what are the Cubs doing? Not going for one of the sure fire can't miss guys. And what they saw in Kate Horton was a slider in the college world series that they felt was major league ready right now. And he is in double a where that pitch is doing damage. Um, and I think that Kate Horton is not a guy that they necessarily drafted to be a top of the rotation starter. I think they drafted him to be 
a bull, an elite bullpen guy. I mean, they'd love it if he could get hit, if he could lengthen out and become a starter at some point in time. But I don't think they would hesitate to bring him on as an impact reliever if they were trying to make a push in a stretch run. And so those are two guys I'm keeping an eye on. No, that's fantastic. And great stuff there. Sarah, one of the things we wanted to talk about too, you know, um, you're hosting this incredible podcast right now called What the Fab. And it is really a fun listen and a, a really great thing to listen to. Can you talk a little bit about the nexus of how you came up with doing that? And maybe also talk about a couple people that you might be targeting this weekend in Fab. I promise not to steal them in Glarf. <laughs> well, I haven't gotten to my Fab research for this weekend next uh, yet. And honestly, in Glarf, I just really need guys who can start baseball games and potentially get me some <laughs> wins and strikeouts. Uh Last year in Glarf, I had the problem of not having saves because I missed on all my late closer targets. And so I actually punted saves pretty early in the season and managed to rack up a bunch of wins and Ks that way. Um, This season, I'm doing okay in saves, but I can't really punt because I don't have that kind of lead. And I am not doing nearly as well uh, in wins or in strikeouts. It's been it's been a little bit of a struggle. So um, can I pause you for a second, Sarah? Because yeah. you, so I'm in turf, the the New York version of this Earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you said that you're struggling with wins. You can't be struggling as much as I am. Um, I think I have. I, I didn't even want to. <laughs> I didn't want to pull it up, but it, it's. It's so embarrassing. I have like 20 wins on the year. Listen to the pitching staff that I put together for this. It's like I couldn't pick a worse staff if I tried. Sandy Alcantara, Max Freed, um, who is my third, Hunter Green, uh, Tyon, Matthew Boyd, David Peterson, and Steven Matz. I mean, is is that the worst seven-man rotation that you've ever seen in a 15-team league? I, my, mine might be worse. So hold on. I'm going to go okay. to. All right. Let's I, compare. I have 29 wins at the moment. Okay. I am one win ahead of Michael Govier. That's new because I was definitely last place in wins like when I was chucking this over the weekend. So I, I have one more win than Michael Govier right now. These are the pitchers that I'm going with. Admittedly, not the pitchers I necessarily drafted, but these are the pitchers I have right now. Emmanuel Class A, Tyler Glass now. Andrew Chafin, who just lost his job and is going to have to be uh, traded in for some other type of pitcher. Uh, Kodai Senga, Garrett Whitlock, Matt Strom, who I still have in there because I don't have a better starter to replace him with. And at least he vultures some wins sometimes. Mackenzie Gore, Julio Arias, who I am praying is going to make that start against Kansas City this weekend because I really need him back in my rotation and Yanni Chirinos, who I finally managed, I finally managed to pick up somebody who was going to get a start on the waiver wire. That was just last weekend. You got to be the judge who, who picked a worse uh, pitching staff there. Well, I'm, I'm going to go with you, Chris. I think your, your staff is worse. Um, Sarah's is more of a a, a situation of luck, but anybody who believes in Steven Matz as much as you do. um, I had a lot of Steven Matz this year. Unfortunately, you did. Yeah. I understood. I understood it. I mean, it made sense to me on the surface, but um, yeah, you know, you saw him pitch there in, in New York for a while, and you see some glimpses and think that it's going to be okay. Sort of like how I think Michael Kopech was going to be okay, and that's really not okay. Um, bad process, Mike Carter. Bad process. Um, so, it, so let me tell you what I'm doing with this team. I've actually decided. So, I've completely punted wins because there's just no coming back. I can't even waste my time with it. Um, what I what I'm doing is just trying to pick up every closer that's available. So right now I'm starting like five closers. So the goal is to win saves, to try to chip away. My ratios suck, 
but try to chip away at them with having elite relievers or good relievers uh, and then try to uh, just mash my like win every offensive category, which my offense is really good. Uh, so I, I'm still like hovering around 80 points. Uh, I would need to like really it's like hitting an inside straight draw for me to have a, a chance <laughs> in this league. It's chances are slim to none. But uh, if everything breaks right, I might be able to at least cash. Uh, so that's a strategy that I'm going with. But yeah, I was looking at my draft. I'm like, oh, my God, like this is these pitchers that that is the worst start you know that uh that anybody i i feel like that could go up against anybody in terms of worst rotation but uh anyway i'm sorry sarah to cut you off i just wanted to uh chime in and uh complain a little bit about my team i i mean i'm happy to listen to complaints about about teams in the earth league right now that is where i am struggling really more than any other place i mean i'm gonna try to make a comeback here we'll see what happens but um I, I am not optimistic. Like I said, Julio Arias coming back and being healthy for a while and not sucking is is pretty critical to me being able to do any of the things I want to do there. And I'm just looking um, back a couple of people that I definitely missed on here because I'm looking at the draft now. I mean, I definitely had high hopes for Hayden Wisniewski, and that has not paid off for me anywhere. Um, and I have not been able to really replace him with an arm that I'm confident in, uh, hence Yanni Torinos and Matt Strom. Um, the... Uh, other guy who I kind of, I had high hopes for and I was wrong about was Sean Manaya. And well, I have, I no longer have Sean Manaya on the teams where I drafted him. <laughs> so we know how that worked out. Yeah, it's, it's a tough thing, right? I mean, that's the thing that's so interesting about drafting, you know, you, things end up happening and you, you, you shift your position or your thought process on where you were at, you know, like we were in, in, in Glarf, I, I think I had the sixth, fifth or the sixth pick and I ended up taking Aaron judge. And now I'm, you know, waiting for him to come back from this uh, toe injury. And it sounds like it might be a really prolonged uh, absence, you know, so trying to tread water, I think I'm in seventh right now in Glarf, but I have 41 wins and 38 saves. I was looking at it while you guys were uh, discussing it. So I'm trying to, you know, tread water in there. And Chris, what you said about the ratios is just so important. One of the things that I've learned playing in these higher powered leagues is man, when your ratios go south, you cannot get them back. It is really, really hard to rebuild those. And Sarah had made a comment about that before uh, the season had started about, boy, you know, protecting those ratios at all costs. And I really took that to heart. I'm trying really hard to be able to do that. So again, thank you for the advice, Sarah. But my initial question, I think, was to talk about how you came up with the idea for the podcast, because it's such a unique idea. Can you tell us a little bit about where you came up with that idea and how you choose to execute it on a weekly basis? Yeah, well, look, there's a lot of fantasy baseball podcasts, and most of them are hosted by people I'm friends with. Like, I love listening to everybody's podcasts. There's, I, That's what I do when I'm walking around the city, when I'm on my way back and forth to Wrigley uh, between games. I like to walk a lot, so I'll do like a 10-mile walk at least once a weekend, and I'm listening to your podcasts all the time. Thank you to all the great fantasy content creators out there who are making that happen. I felt I felt like there was a little bit of a gap between, like, places where you can just go ask silly questions or what you think are silly questions. Like, I don't really know. Like you don't want to put it out on Twitter, like this player or that player. Why did you do the fab structure the way that you did it? Or why do you have, why do some people have 10 guys on their waterfall and some people are confident with just two, right? Like why are some people blowing their fab out in April and other people are budgeting it to make sure that they have fab for every single period through the end of the season, which of those strategies is better and why. And I, I'm a process person. I like thinking about how things work and putting together those processes to come up 
with what hopefully works out to good outcomes in the end. I, I'm actually looking at my draft board right now for Glarf, and it's a really good example of like, this wasn't a bad idea. It just didn't come together, right? Like my first pick was Julio Rodriguez, and he's really struggled this year. He's a first-rounder, and that's not a bad pick at the number at number three in a 15-team league pick, and it just hasn't worked out for me. My second-round pick is Nolan Arenado, who also has struggled offensively this year. I mean, who saw that coming? Like, I didn't see that coming. No, There's no reason Nolan Arenado should be struggling that much, and there's no reason the Cardinals should be this bad. And yet, there's my first two picks, and you can sort of start to get a, get a sense of where this all went astray, right? Like the next bat I took, I took Emmanuel Class A, then I took Urias, both of whom are working out okay. The next bat I took was Corey Seager, who promptly missed like six weeks. Corey Seager's been excellent, right? Like Corey mm-hmm. Seager has been outstanding and the Rangers offense can play. And I didn't have him playing shortstop for a large portion of the season. I had like Mauricio Dubon and Edmundo Sosa, like trying to fill in and like get something while Corey Seager was out. So I I like process because I think process usually leads to good results. It doesn't necessarily lead to good results, but it usually leads to good results. It's, it's a prerequisite to good results. And so I wanted to show where I could bring people on and ask them the questions I have about why they make the decisions that they make and to really sort of bridge the gap between for those of us. And I say us because I only started playing in industry leagues like three years ago. Um, For those of us who are making the jump, from a home league that maybe you've dominated on a first come first serve waiver wire for a long time, or you're like the person that everybody in your front group is like, Oh yeah, we have an opening in a fantasy league. Sarah will totally join making the jump from that to more of those high stakes leagues and playing against industry types and like what types of things people are thinking about as they make those decisions. And I also recognize, um, and I think this is important, you know, the fantasy baseball community is really generous with their knowledge. You can, DM people and just talk to them or like get into their mentions and just be like, Hey, should I take this trade deal or whatever? Most people will give you an answer and they'll give you an honest answer. I I wanted to democratize that a little bit and just have on some people where there could be space for follow-ups and space for, that's a really interesting procedure. I don't do it that way. Why do you do it that way? And then I could try out some of their procedures and see if I like them too. And so what the fab is kind of a double entendre. We talk about uh, the latest fab run and who's been hurt and where you might need to replace guys and all of that type of stuff for the first half of the show. And the second half of the show is mostly process. And that process could be an individual fantasy player's um, attempt to why they're taking this pitcher or that pitcher, why they're super jazzed about Yuri Perez and they weren't as in on Tanner Bybee for whatever reason. Um, or it could be process in terms of, I just had Jason Collette on and he was talking about, Jason does an amazing job of tracking like trends in the league, like in MLB generally and looking for things like who, which teams are stealing, which teams are stealing more than they're catching guys who are stealing. Does that matter? I don't know. Why would that matter? One of the things that Jason and I talked about at length on that episode um, is that whip is up, but earned runs are, no, earned runs are up, but whip is not. So the, and the, thing that actually contributes to that is stolen bases. Like guys taking second and third has increased the run environment, despite the fact that walks and hits per innings pitched isn't really going up all that much. I find stuff like that fascinating. I think it informs how you make decisions about your draft in the next year. It, I was one of these people that kind of thought you could wait on stolen bases a little bit because they would get democratized all evenly. And the guy who sold 10 bases last year would steal 17 bases this year. And that hasn't really happened. Like the guys who stole 10 bases last year are still like seven to 10 base stealers, but the guys who sold like 30 are like on pace to steal 50. Right. And so I think that paying attention to all of those trends and talking to smart people about them makes me a better player. And I just wanted other people to be able to listen to those conversations. 
Well, it's a great pod. And I, I was really lucky to be able to be on it. And it was a lot of fun. And I really think that um, you're hitting on something there that's really important because I think one of the things that's great about fantasy baseball, like you've said, is that the community is inclusive. People can go to people and get advice a lot of the time and, and have a conversation. But the one thing that I think happens a lot of times that I've always was longing for uh, years and years of playing and playing in, in home leagues and family leagues and stuff like that was process. Because when you're playing in a, a family league or a friend league, generally, if you're a pretty good player, you're probably going to finish in the money almost all the time. It's when you start playing against people of the caliber of you, of you two that you start to really separate yourself from the people that maybe you grew up playing with and whatnot. And that's the true crucible, I think, the true training ground of how to do that. So having that podcast, is to me, it's a must listen every week because I love listening to other people who I feel are really, really good players and are better than me for sure, their process, because it, it informs what you do. And there, there's no such thing as having enough knowledge when it comes to playing this game, in my opinion. So kudos to you on the pod. It's great. Uh, if you guys are not listening to it, you got to check it out. It's called what the fab. It's a great, a great thing. So um Sarah, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in terms of what you're doing and projects that you got going on? You've given us a, a lot of your time today, very graciously. Anything else that you got going on with the other sites that you're working at? Well, thank you for the kind words for What the Fab. I'm having a blast with it. Um, I just had Matt Tress on. Matt uh, it and I are in Tat Wars together and finished 1-2 in Tat Wars last year. And um, I was... Sitting in first place uh, in Tout Wars in July and August for most of the time, not consistently, but like, you know, one of those like 90% in first place types of things. I could see Tress like creeping up on me and I could not figure out how to counteract the moves that he was making to hold that lead. And sure enough, in September, um, he picked up like Jake McCarthy and Bubba Thompson, I think, and passed me in steals. And I just couldn't get those points back. And I didn't make a move that that counteracted that. So I took I, I ended up taking second. But it was interesting to talk that through with trust, like the way that he made those decisions and the way that I made my decisions and how those ended up playing out. But the impetus for that show actually was um, he just bid $1 more in fab than what I had in the bank to ensure he got Ellie De La Cruz. And I game recognized game. Like I see it. I was like, respect. Thank you. And also I cannot believe you went $1 over my budget to make sure I would not get Ellie De La Cruz. So wow. um, that, that was fun to chat through and talk about with Matt, who's a chat, who's a Tout Wars champion, a great, great player. The next episode, Eric Cross is going to join me and we're going to talk. Um, I, well, I don't have that script ready yet. So, so stay tuned. It'll be right after the 4th of July holiday and that, that, that one will drop. And then we usually drop the episodes on Monday, but with the holiday and uh, some t- travel that I was doing, the next one will be out on July 5th. So stay tuned for that one. It should be a great conversation. With Eric, in terms of other projects, I mean, I write about the Cubs at bleedcubbyblue.com. If you are a Cubs aficionado and you like sabermetrics at all, check out my writing. I tend to do stuff looking at the various trends that are going on there. I'm actually currently working on a piece looking at whether or not what Christopher Morell has put together uh, in the month of June is a real change that is sustainable. Uh, spoiler alert, I think it is. Or whether it's a fluke, because we all know that baseball players can have just these streaky moments where they do great things and then they never get their strikeout rate down in the low 20s again. Um, but I think what's happened with morale is, in fact, a substantive change. 
I've been doing the Playing Time Tomorrow column at Baseball HQ, which has been awesome and a great way to expand my horizons a little bit. Everybody kind of knows me as the Cubs girl and like they know I can play some fantasy, but I've never gotten a chance to do a deep dive on a division outside of the NL Central before. And so it's been fun to apply my um, style of writing and analysis to the NL East uh, for a change. That column generally drops on Saturdays and that's been a great time. And in terms of um, podcast work, I will just say that if you are a fan of the old SB Nation podcast, What the Fab also lives on Fans First Sports Network, uh, go check out Fans First Sports Network and see all the content there. It is basically the old SB Nation pods plus uh, a ton of really smart people putting together great shows and great content. And if you want to find What the Fab, just search for Fans First Sports Network Fantasy and you will find us there. Well, that's awesome. Well, Sarah, you know, thanks again for uh, making time to come on with us. You know, we we love having you on because you always go really in depth and are so passionate about what you do, and it it just you you just exude it, and uh, that's what we need more of in the world is people being passionate about the things that are going on around them. So we thank you so much for your time, and for sure we will be looking to have you back on again before the season is over. Thanks again for coming on and and giving us a half an hour of your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I love chatting with you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Fantasy Baseball Beat. I'm Mike Carter, your host for the evening. And with us tonight, I have a very special guest. We have a wonderful college baseball player that's joining us tonight. His name is Jackson Gray. He's the starting center fielder for the Kentucky Wildcats this past year. If you weren't watching... The Wildcats made a very deep run into the college playoffs and lost to eventual champion LSU. Don't know if you know much about LSU. They have a couple of pretty good players that you might have heard of, guys that are probably going to be top three, top five picks in the draft coming up. But uh, Jack Gray is a guy from Wheaton, Illinois, not too far away from where I live here in Batavia. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about him before I give him an opportunity to answer some questions and kind of talk through his uh, really interesting career with us. Jack last year hit 338 with a mind-boggling 491 OBP. Let that sink in for a second. That's like Little League fantastic right there. 491 OBP, five home runs, 19 steals, and 60 games. Jack served as the leadoff hitter in helping UK to a spot in the Super Regional, where, as I said, they lost to the eventual champion LSU. No harm there in that. But Jack led the Wildcats this year in batting average, runs, triples, and a sort of ignominious statistic hit by pitches I think it was 25 that I saw in the stat log for Jack getting hit by pitches which is kind of absurd in a 60 game season but Jack set the record for the highest OBP in a season for Kentucky had 21 multi-hit games out of those 60 and 26 extra base hits the superlatives are not enough to describe this guy not only is he a great baseball player he was also an academic all-american this year as well Jack Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for spending some time with us tonight. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate that intro. I'm, I'm blushing a little bit. That was good. <laughs> well, I am a trained writer, you know, so hopefully I got <laughs> some of that some of that stuff right. Uh, Jack, one that of the reasons why one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on was to tell us about your path to getting to the University of Kentucky because it was kind of a circuitous route that you went through to get there. You played in multiple different levels over the years from Division three to NAIA to Division one. It's fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got here? Yeah, it's been a wild journey. You know, I took the scenic route through college, you could say. 
um, four different schools in five years. But, um, you know, actually coming out of, out of high school, I was, I thought I was going to play football for a while. So I was, I was working on that through up until my senior year, really. And then, uh, kind of switched my mind up right before senior year and, and, uh, was set on baseball. So I landed, uh, landed at a division three out of high school. And then, yeah, from there, I mean, uh, you know, I wanted, I wanted to play at a higher level, you know, I wanted to really kind of see what I was capable of and, um, decided to come back and played, uh, junior college baseball for a year and then uh from there went out to western kentucky for two years and then transferred for grad school out to kentucky this past year that's pretty wild so you also had over the course of time you had some pretty significant injuries over the course of that career as well right um you know i I had a few things here and there one thing i'd say that like i attribute some of my success to is just being durable throughout college Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think even through back through high school and including high school football, high school baseball, I think I missed, uh, one weekend series and that was my junior year of college. So I, I think it was four games and that's it between, uh, football and baseball. So I had a coach tell me one time that availability is the best ability. So, I mean, I definitely, I've definitely been beat up at times, but, um, you know, there's a, I guess there's a difference between being hurt and injured. So, uh, as long if I can, if I can get on the field, I want to play. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm sure also probably playing at a place like Kentucky, there's probably a young guy that's waiting for you to go down to take your spot anyway. Right. So like, that's probably a, a large motivation to stay out there too. I would imagine. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I've had to really, I've had to compete everywhere I went for a spot, even, you know, there's talent at all levels. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't like some crazy world beater playing division three either. I mean, I think I, I hit like 320 something. Um, you know, it wasn't like I was putting up crazy numbers and had to earn my spot there too. So I think, uh, I think one thing you mentioned just the competition at Kentucky, like definitely, definitely a higher talent level. But, um, I think kind of starting from division three and then working up slowly, like, it kind of it kind of played to my advantage just because I don't think I would have been ready to just be thrown into uh, an SEC program freshman year. I don't know if I if I like could have handled that, um, you know, physically, mentally, just between everything. So I kind of got to work my way up and and kind of develop as a player and and mentally before before making it to Kentucky and playing in the SEC. That's a pretty fascinating process. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, you said you came to Kentucky for uh, grad school and played your last year there. What was your, what was the uh, deciding factor for you in doing that? I mean, when you were done with Western Kentucky, how did you know that you wanted to continue playing? Yeah, it was, it was tough. Um, you know, so we had, we had a tough year my last year at Western and I personally had a bad year too. And so, you know, I was, I was kind of sitting there, we had a, we had a coaching change. Um, and then kind of like a month, five weeks went by without hiring a new coach. And I was, I I was going to stay at Western and kind of all of a sudden I was just like, you know, it's been a while, haven't heard anything. So I'm going to just go ahead and see what's out there. Um, with, you know, most likely in my head, I was going to come back, but I just wanted to see what was out there. Um, considering we didn't have a coach yet. And, Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, once, once Kentucky reached out, it became real, you know, like a lot of the other schools, um, I wouldn't have necessarily left to go do cause I loved it at Western, but, um, you know, I'm just, I just look back and I'm so grateful to the coaching staff, you know, coach Mingione at, at Kentucky for giving me the opportunity. And I knew once I was on the table, I wasn't going to be able to say no. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. That's got to be an incredible feeling and a testament to all the hard work that you put in to get to that point as well, right? To have an SEC team come to you and say, hey, you know, we really want you on the squad. I mean, that's just got to be an incredibly fulfilling experience. It was good, yeah. I mean, and like I said, I didn't really know what to expect coming off of a of a down year, personally. You know, I had a good year, uh, junior year, and um, I had a good summer after that, too, playing in the Northwoods League. And so I was able to kind of rely on that. Um, you know, I'd, I'd proven it uh, before. But, yeah, coming off my senior year, I hit 203. So there's not a lot of teams looking in the portal looking for a 200 hitter, you know. But, um, like, those those coaches at Kentucky, they they do their homework in the portal. Like, they, they aren't just, uh, you know, they're looking at video. They watch, like, every single swing I took over the past two years, and they're like, they're like they saw the potential and they knew they could uh get me back to my my form so um but yeah i mean once they once they reached out it was great um definitely still still uh a tough decision just leaving what i'm comfortable with and going to a new place knowing you know nothing was going to be handed to me is all going to have to be earned starting fresh but um so glad i did it was the best decision i've ever made i'd say well, whatever they did, it certainly seemed to work because going from a 203 hitter to a 338 hitter and leading the team in hitting uh, last year, that's a pretty remarkable turnaround. They must have seen something that they liked because uh, you were flat out one of the best players on the field in every game that you played this year. We were talking before we recorded that I got to see you play quite a bit on TV this year. Um, and it's just a remarkable uh, gift that you have to be able to play. But I think the thing that I took away more from watching you play was just your grit, you know, like we talk a lot about guys that have talent and natural talent. And um, sometimes the thing that's missing is that determination. Can you talk a little bit about where that comes from for you? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's always, it's always been there. Um, It came out probably more in in college and just being a guy, you know, uh, on the team at Kentucky and a lot of those guys are, you know, they came there straight out of high school. Um, and you know, they, they haven't, uh, been down the road, the road of D3 to Juco. And, you know, we had a, we had a bunch of guys on the team, you know, that had transferred in and we kind of called ourselves junkyard dogs just because we hadn't, we weren't used to all the, the nice things that come with being a SEC athlete, you know, all the, everything that's all the resources, every like food, all that stuff. Like, you know, we were used to a lot less. so. I think that kind of teaches you great. You got to, to be successful at the, at a lower level. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. You know, like those are things that outside people don't know anything about, right. You know, the, 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 the leaps that you had to make going from different places, right. I mean, not only from division three to then NAIA to then division one, but then also playing in Northwoods, you know, you have to, I'm guessing you have to adjust to every step along the way that it can be a real eye-opening experience for somebody, but because of your maturity and the way that you were forced to kind of come up through the game, you probably didn't find yourself too wide-eyed. 
And I, I look at that experience from a, from an outsider's perspective and see you hit a home run against LSU. And for many people, that would be sort of the pinnacle of their career, you know? So you were cool as a cucumber, you know, like you had, like you'd done it a million times, you know, and uh, obviously LSU is a tough, a tough squad. I mean, they, they proved it. They proved their medal the last couple of weeks. That's for sure. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, what was going through your mind playing those guys? I mean, did you look at that any differently? Like an outsider person like me, who's not a division one athlete, right? Never was, never would be looks at that and says, wow, you know, when you start playing against the big dogs, like, does your mindset change at all? Is it still just a game to you? Like, how did that kind of uh, work for you in that situation? Yeah. I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's just baseball, you know? So I remember actually going back to, um, back when I was at Western and it was, it was my senior year there. So it was my second year at Western. Um, and we actually went to play Kentucky on the road and I'd, I'd played them the year before, but I'm, I'm in the dugout before the game. And I see some of the new guys like looking over there, like, you know, kind of wide eyed at Kentucky. And like, I just told them, you know, um, like they're just normal guys like us. They're no different than us. Um, so that's kind of the mindset you have to have. It's kind of funny ending up on Kentucky after that, but um, but yeah, same same kind of mentality going to LSU. It was uh, just an insane environment between the fans and the stadium. And uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the at the end of the day, it's kind of like you're looking over at the other players, and they're like the celebrities of college baseball. Like you you know who they are. You you've uh, seen them for multiple years now. So. It is it is a little weird, but like once the game starts going, it's just baseball like any other any other game really. Yeah, I would imagine that you kind of just put that aside at some point, right? So uh that is just that's a really cool play, place to play though, huh? LSU. I mean it's gotta be yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah, and going off that too, like if you if you step in the box kinda thinking about how great the pitcher you're about to face is, you're already done. Really. Yeah. So you gotta do whatever you have to to convince yourself that that you're better before you get in the box, you know. But that was it was a surreal experience, and we actually we got to go down there and play them in the regular season too at their place, and uh, you know it was crazy then. Um, but I just remember coming back and guys were talking about how loud it was and everything, and I realized that I didn't really I was like so locked in I didn't really take it in at at times just the crowd and everything. So the second time around it was it was even crazier, and I made sure like you know, just kind of take a step back during certain moments and take it in. Cause it was, it was pretty cool. I never really thought that I'd, I'd be playing there. <laughs> so, you know, it, it is pretty cool, even though there's 13,000 people, you know, that, that want you dead, but <laughs> it's still a cool experience. It reminds me of um, last year when Adley Rutschman got called up for the Orioles, you know, and he went out to home plate and the umpire was congratulating him for making it. And he just, did like a 20 second swoop all around the park and just took it all in. I was like, man, that's something I don't know how you'd ever forget something like that, you know? So yeah. and it's, it was, it's hard to do in the moment sometimes just cause you're so, you're so focused on the game, the next pitch, all this stuff. But yeah, at, at certain times it's a good idea to just take a step back and kind of appreciate the moment. For sure. For sure. That's pretty incredible. Um, it was really fun to, to watch you play throughout the year and, and against LSU, obviously it didn't go the way that you guys wanted to go, but boy, what a great season you guys had at Kentucky with over 40 wins this year. Just a remarkable season for you guys. Jack, one thing that a lot of times our, our listeners kind of want to know about when we talk to you know people who are players and, and are involved as deeply as you are is 
What's one piece of advice that you received along the way that you feel has been the most helpful? You know, I don't, I don't know if there's a specific, um, you know, piece of advice, but just in general, um, just the mental side of the game, I think was something that, you know, once, once I matured mentally, I became a much better player just because that, that's a big part of the game, but you know, just how you handle failure, you know, I've experienced it in my career. I've had to overcome it and you kind of mature throughout that process. Um, but yeah, once, once you kind of, uh, once you kind of train yourself mentally, just believe in yourself, um, you know, a lot of times it's like your own, your own brain that's holding you back. Um, especially I feel like baseball, especially is a, is a more mental game than a lot of other sports. Would you say that developing the mental side of things was harder even than the physical side of staying healthy and being in great shape to be able to play? Oh, for sure. For sure. I didn't, I didn't know how to do that. Like, especially, you know, coming up through high school and, and stuff, I would, so I just got in the gym and like took care of the physical part of it. Cause I didn't, I didn't know what to do for the mental side of it. It just, I think with me, it just, it just kind of took more experience playing more games getting more comfortable and kind of, you know, throughout that process, you kind of, um, you know, figure it out a little bit mentally. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's hard, especially, uh, when you're failing, you know, baseball is a game of failure. A lot of people, a lot of people say that, and it's true. Just the way you deal with that failure will, will kind of determine how good you are in the long term. Well, that's for sure. I coach 11 and 12 year olds over here and, uh, we just lost our first round playoff game on Monday night. So we got eliminated, um, which uh, allowed me to, which allowed me to be a little bit more free this week to do things, but obviously what well, we always want to be playing. Right. So if there was anything that you would say to young guys that are, you know, that follow you and, and um, you know, watch baseball, what piece of advice would you give a young guy that's maybe 10, 12 years younger than you, that's looking at baseball and really, you know, uh, wanting to play and, and, and play at the level that you did. Um, you know, I would say, uh, I'd say kind of, it goes along with the mental conversation we're having, but, you know, kind of, you got to learn to just take the game one pitch at a time. Don't, don't think too far in the future or get hung up in the past. Um, you know, or if you're too fixated on stats, numbers, like that's never a good thing usually. Um, and then, you know, this, this might not apply to 11, 12 year olds, but coming up through high school. Um, if you're like looking to, to get to college baseball, play at that level, I think just, um, you know, you can control what you do in the weight room and what you're eating. I think that stuff gave me kind of a leg up going to that next level. And that's kind of what I tell younger guys who are asking, um, you know, if you, if you can focus on those things as well as your baseball training and all that, um, it'll give you a leg up on other guys who are like trying to play catch up to you. So, yeah, I would say, you know, again, the weight room, uh, figure out your eating if you need to eat. But personally, me, I was like a string bean back in the day. I had to like train myself to eat more to get bigger. So yeah, if you could take care of that stuff, I think, uh, that'll kind of give you a leg up moving to the next level. It's interesting, isn't it? Cause there's a lot of kids at the high school level and I see it around here too, that are, are really good players but they don't have that piece. They don't 
they go to McDonald's after they're done, you know, playing the game or whatever, and they can eat that junk food. It doesn't bother them. Then they go to the weight room and they're maybe not focusing always on the right kind of things that they should be doing in the weight room. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of talk and a lot of conversation and whatnot. So I think that's really great advice, you know, that those good habits really start early, you know, that those are things that are really important. So yeah, we're here. I mean, I was like that too, because you can, you can control. That's something you can control. A lot of t- there's a lot of things in baseball that are out of your control. You know, you can hit the ball hard and get out, so you can't control what the what the defense is doing, stuff like that. But um, you know, you can control if you go to the gym, you're taking care of your business on that side. Yeah, it's so funny, Jack, because when when I tell the kids that too, we we had a kid that hit like a cannon shot to deep center field the other night and it got caught. And he was coming off and he was upset. And I said, hey, look, you can't hit the ball any harder than that. Sometimes you hit it right at somebody. Next at bat, you'll probably hit a bleeder between two people and you'll get a double. Sure enough, that's just the way the game goes, right? A guy hits a gork somewhere and he ends up with a double. You know, like that's just the way that it is. It's it's a funny game that way. So um, we're here with Jackson Gray, who is the starting center fielder for the Kentucky Wildcats this past year. And he's made some time to to be with us. Um, I know Jackson through his sister, who I work with. On my uh, second job that I do tutoring on the weekends, his older sister's name is Hannon. Hannon told me that I had to work into this interview that Jack is her younger brother. She wanted to make sure that that got said on the podcast. So, Jack, I'm sorry to throw you under the bus on that one, but I I told her that I would have to fit that in. Um, You know, you've you've been talking a little bit about this already, but another question that kind of comes up when we have access to someone of your caliber is, what do you do on game day to prepare yourself both mentally and physically to be able to play? Um, you know, baseball is such a, a superstitious sport. You know, guys have like different things they'll do every single game day, all this, you know, and like sometimes it happens subconsciously too. Like if you're hitting well, you're just, you do the same thing every day and you start to to do all that. But like, sometimes I had to tell myself, just all right, chill out. You don't need to, you don't need to put your sock on a certain way to get a hit, you know, <laughs> you know, you get caught up in it sometimes, but, um, you know, I started, I started, uh, kind of doing some stuff in the training room this year. It was different, you know, between ice baths and stuff. I always kind of tried to avoid the training room early in my career, but kind of felt like an old man at times this year. <laughs> but, um, other than, the, other than that, just kind of, um, you know, I, I try to keep it somewhat similar on game days in making sure like I'm getting up, you know, um, I'd always listen to like similar music on the way to the field, stuff like that. Just kind of keep a routine, right? I mean, just to, keeping on a schedule and doing those things for yourself is probably really important as well. Right. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool stuff. Um, Jack, one of the things too, uh, that we talk about a lot on our podcast and, um, I'm a special ed teacher by trade, and our other co-host, Chris, is a, is a clinical therapist in New York. And we talk a lot about the idea of, of mental health, and especially mental health in men, because it's not something that gets discussed too frequently. You know, a lot of times men are kind of taught to bottle it up and, and figure out ways to get around it and uh, don't have people to be able to talk to. If you don't mind our asking, you know, what's something that you do for yourself to make sure that you're keeping your mental health on track? And I'm sure that there was a lot of times in your career, especially that last year when you were hitting, you know, 203 and, and wondering kind of what was next. What are some things that you've done to be able to kind of keep yourself in a good mental health shape? 
I mean, I think when it comes to to this, like a sports, um, you know, if you're an athlete, whatever, just kind of separating, separating the game from the rest of your life a little bit. Um, you know, just just when you leave the field, let all that stay at the field, because um, yeah, it can get ugly if you bring it if you bring it with you. You know, um, it, it's like it's no fun for the people around you if you're bringing negativity from the field, how things are going there, and bringing it home uh, to your family, friends, and all that stuff. So, just kind of being able to separate the two, I think that's that's kind of helped me mentally, um, and then. You know, something my mom told me this year, too, was just, like, instead of feeling nervous, just tell yourself you're excited. And mm-hmm. it's weird. You can, like, you can almost just um, kind of, like, tell yourself to think about it differently from a different perspective, and it'll change your whole attitude and outlook, you know. So, I mean, there are times this year, even as an older guy going, starting to play, you know, early in the season or starting SEC play that I'm, like, you know feeling the nerves before the game and it you just kind of like remember to tell myself oh I'm, I'm excited i'm not nervous it's like you know thinking about what what good could happen instead of what bad um i think that's something that's something that helped me and really would have would have helped me um when i was younger you know coming up through high school and and beginning of college too I'm sure that, you know, with the path that you took, that that probably helps build some confidence in thinking that let's think about what could go right instead of what could go wrong, considering that not that the other choices that you had were wrong choices. I don't mean it in that regard, but just everything that you did built to this year, right? Like all the things that you did and the successes and the failures and you get on this stage, it's like, well, what do I have to lose? I've already been in a different place and this is a, a totally new place for me to be able to work and shine like you did this year. Yeah, I mean, and I always wanted to just kind of bet on myself too. You know, I took some risks leaving certain places, going to a new place, not knowing what was next at times. Um, and just, yeah, I learned if, you know, just bet on yourself, believe in yourself. Um, and most, most times it'll work out. And if it doesn't, you can look back and, and be fine with it. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to look back and think, what if, you know, Cause I could have probably gone back to Western, you know, and been comfortable, but I didn't want to, didn't want to look back and think what, you know, what if I went to Kentucky? What if I took that, that risk? So I figured just bet on myself and I'll be at peace. That's such a cool thing to say, right? Because even though you're saying that you're an older guy, you're what, 23, right? And so we have, we have people that are my age, I'm going to be 50 in a couple of weeks, right? Like, we people my age look back and say, what if all the time? So for you at a young age to be able to say, you know what, I don't want to look back and feel the level, any level of regret. You know, Cal Ripken Jr. one time said that in, in his uh, Hall of Fame speech where he said, you know, I didn't want to go about my career in a certain way that when I got to the end, I was looking back like a lot of the old guys that I knew coming up and said, I wish I had taken it more seriously or I wish I had played harder. Or I wish that I had known what I know now back then, you know, he wanted to go about it in a certain way so that at the end of the day, that his talent and his skill level, which was obviously very high also matched up to his dedication that he had, you know? And so he really understood that. And I, I have that up on my wall in my, in my uh, office at school that just says, you know, I accomplished what my skills and determination and ability allowed me to do because the determination is a missing factor. And it's certainly something that you have in abundance with the career that you've had and all the things that you've been able to accomplish. And the year that you had at Kentucky this year was just phenomenal. Even 
though you beat up on my Hoosiers, my beloved Hoosiers. <laughs> I know it's not personal. I you just got a job to do, well, but you <laughs> You know, I did I did gift them a home run. I don't know if you if you saw that game, but I ended up on the what, Sports Center, not top ten for that one. But <laughs> I was I was not going to bring that up. <laughs> but yeah, I would. I did see that one. But hey, you know what? You're you're making the effort to do it. Those things are going to happen, right? You play play long enough, you're going to see a lot of weird things like that. Um, yeah, that's part of it. We're we're here with uh, Jackson Gray from University of Kentucky. Uh, he's got a couple more minutes to give us. And Jack, I had a couple more questions that I wanted to ask you, and um, I don't want to jinx it or anything like that. But is there are there any thoughts in your mind about, you know, continuing to play into the future? Um, do you think that you have a chance to get drafted um, in the upcoming draft? Yeah, I think there's a chance. You know, you never know for sure, really. Like, even after my junior year, I thought I had a, a good shot and it didn't happen. So you, you never know. But, you know, I think I, I got a shot for sure. And if not, you know, hopefully I'll be able to sign with the team after the draft. Um, you know, I feel like. I feel like I'm just kind of just kind of coming into my own uh, baseball wise, like reaching my potential. And um, I just need an opportunity, I think, you know. For sure. And I, I think that you hit it right on the head, right? I mean, some people might look at you and say, oh, 23, is that a prospect? But yes, I mean, there's no shelf life on us and you're just hitting your stride. With the year that you had last year, I would be shocked if you weren't drafted, and I would be shocked if you don't catch on with another team. I think that you will, and I, I hope that when you do at some point that maybe we'd be able to have you come back on and talk a little bit about that experience, whatever you feel comfortable in sharing with us. But um, it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to have you on, and I, I really appreciate you making time. Do you want to tell people where they might be able to find you on Twitter if they want to follow you? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so I would be uh, Jackson is Gray on Instagram and then Jackson Gray 23 on Twitter if you guys want to follow me. Well you should. I mean, he puts out a lot of really cool stuff and retweets a lot of cool stuff too. Uh Jack, thanks again for for being with us tonight and making a 30 minute time to kind of be on the podcast. This is the Fantasy Baseball Beat. I'm Mike Carter and saying goodnight for Jackson Gray. We will be back with you next week with another episode where we're going to be talking about, I believe the Colorado Rockies and what their plans are for the upcoming trade deadline. Rockies are going to Rocky is what they always say. Thanks to you all. Peace. Take care of your mental health. We will see you next week. Thank you.